Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 32 through verse 44. Hear now God's Word. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, and again, this is Jesus speaking, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. On On the first Sunday of Advent, we considered the cosmic advent of Jesus. Uh, he was the Word, and, uh, and, and that was the Word that was in the beginning and that spoke the cosmos into existence. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We talked about the bigness of God, the coming of Jesus there at the very beginning in the creation. On the second Sunday of Advent, we considered the cradle that rocked the world, his birth in Bethlehem. And I wanted us there to consider how small he was, how weak he was, in order to enter our world and to do the work of rescue And he did so in a remarkable manner. You'll recall uh, Nigel Cameron's comment that at the heart of the Christmas celebration is the fact of facts that God became a zygote. The smallest of human beings. At the first advent, the first creation, he said, let there be light. And there was light. At the next advent of Jesus, the second creation, the star of Bethlehem appeared, and a second act of communication announced that the human carnation, incarnation of the eternal word, the light of the world, had snuck in through the back door. And so as we consider these various advents, these comings of Jesus, we have the opportunity to see him from different angles. This is eternal God. 
it is important for us to have then an accurate view of who Jesus is if we are to apprehend and if we are to appreciate his importance and power. He is the creator, he is the sustainer of the cosmos, and he was also a real baby in a manger in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. And as we will see today, he is also the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He is a savior and he is a judge. He does it all. And so there is an overlooked advent of Jesus. The modern evangelical church has been paralyzed by its eschatological obsessions as it constantly predicts and then revises predictions concerning what it calls the second coming of Christ as foretold in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. And I'll have more to say on the Olivet Discourse in a moment. Many are waiting for a secret rapture and the coming of the thief in the night. Many Christians have assumed uh, they have little time for long-term plans for either themselves or for the church or for the world. This has done enormous damage to the church. Numerous popular leaders have hyped their sensational claims about the future, often enriching themselves and in the process leaving the church impoverished. Careless and sometimes dishonest exegesis of the text of Scripture has led to serious theological errors and misrepresentations of the message of Jesus. Time is running out. Man the lifeboats. Don't be left behind. There is no time to polish brass on a sinking ship. These are all messages that have become popular and embedded in our culture, especially in the evangelical world. So I want to ask a question. What if we take the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in context at face value? What if his declaration, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place? What if that did in fact refer to the generation of people that he was speaking to? Now this may sound like a novel idea to many who've never heard it before. Yet it is, in fact, a very old idea. The belief that Jesus was speaking about events 2,000 years or more in the future turns out to be historically new. In fact, it's taught in many modern, as it's taught in many modern evangelical churches, this is an idea that is less than 200 years old. But if that's all you've ever heard, if that's all you've ever known, then it seems like perhaps that's the only option there is. That's all there is. 
Prior to the mid-19th and early 20th centuries, it was commonly understood that the events Jesus spoke about in the Olivet Discourse that we read this morning had already occurred. If this is the case, then many Christians are now like a man who is waiting at a train station for a train that's already left. And so, when someone suggests that there might be another way to think about these things, we're skeptical, and we should be. Anytime you hear something new, if it's new to you, you should be skeptical. And so I want to challenge you today to look And to listen with new eyes and new ears and consider what the scriptures say and teach. You recall that in Acts, uh, Paul or Luke writes about and records the situation in Berea where the apostle Paul had gone to speak. And he commends them. He says, in fact, these Berean Christians were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Some Christians are better than other Christians when it comes to doing certain things. Why? Because they received the word with a good attitude, all readiness of heart, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true because they were hearing some new things. So they got their Bibles out to say, is that what it says? Sure enough, he's, he's telling the truth. So many believers have interpreted the predictions of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse regarding his second coming as positive proof that Jesus was simply mistaken and therefore Christianity is false. Moreover, his apostles also, they say, looked for Christ's coming in their own lifetime, uh, as, uh, as the skeptic is quick to point out, and they too were mistaken and therefore they're not trustworthy. The Bible's not trustworthy. As a result of this view, the most, one of the most famous atheists, Bertrand Russell, cited the Olivet Discourse, as one of the primary reasons that he rejected Christianity. Jesus said he was coming back in in that lifetime, in that generation, and the apostles expected him to come back in that generation, and he didn't come back in that generation. Therefore, Christianity is false. But if what Jesus predicted in the Discourse did occur in the lifetime of the generation that he was speaking to, then rather than being evidence against the truth of Christianity, it becomes instead the absolute and irresistible proof of the divine origin of Christianity. If you want to read more about this after you hear the sermon today, we can't cover everything in just a few minutes. I intend to stir the pot. But if you'd like a copy of this book, The Destruction of Jerusalem, subtitled An Absolute and Irresistible Proof of the Divine Origin of Christianity, see me after the service and I'll give you one. While the final return of Christ for his triumphant church and the execution of his final judgment on the disobedient does remain ahead of us, there is another advent coming. Much of what has been sensationalized as yet turns out to be history. The premise is simple. I'm going to ask you to follow an argument this morning from the text. 
The Olivet Discourse is a prophecy of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. It does not refer to what is commonly called the Second Coming. Therefore, when we hear of wars and rumors of wars in our day, or we see famines and earthquakes in various places, we should not regard it as fulfillment of biblical prophecy and a sign that the second coming is at hand. This will be disappointing to many. But we should read the Bible to discover what it says, not what we want it to say. When will these things be? Matthew 24, 1 through 3. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. This is Herod's temple. It's, a, it's one of the great wonders of the world. Phenomenal. And they, they showed, look at this, Jesus. Isn't this amazing? And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. It took years and years and years, and we would say millions and millions of dollars. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, remember, Jesus had just said, let me tell you, there's going to come a time when all this is going to be torn down. And then, and then what do they want to know? Tell us, when will these things be? When's this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples asked this question of our Lord after he predicted the utter ruin of the temple in Jerusalem. And he answer, the answer forms what has since again been called the Olivet Discourse. He deri- derives its name again from the circumstances where it's delivered. There are some very strong, indeed conclusive proofs that the prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70 rather than at the end of human history. In fact, there are three decisive arguments. First, the object of the inquiry. The disciples had come up to Jesus to point out the beauty and the magnificence of Herod's temple. In response to this, Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? That is, the temple and all the various buildings and decorations. Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. The disciples then asked when this momentous event would occur and what signs would indicate that it was about to happen. The second, uh, excuse me, uh, the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to that question. They didn't ask about what we call the second coming, but rather they were asking about the destruction of the temple. They didn't say, when are you coming back at the end of the world? They asked, You just said the temple's going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? And the prophecy doesn't look forward to 2,000 years or more to the second advent, but only about 40 years to the horrible judgment which fell upon apostate Israel at the hands of the Romans. 
And so if the Olivet Discourse is a prophecy of the events leading up to and including what has come to be called the second coming, Jesus would not have been answering the question that the apostles asked. Second, there is a question of relevance. It hardly seems possible that Jesus would give such a detailed prophecy of events which had no relevance for the people of his own day and specifically the people who were asking the question. We must not lose sight of the original audience to whom the message was given. If Jesus was speaking about events that were still 2,000 or more years in the future, what application did they have to those who heard him deliver the prophecy? Think about the first person pronouns he used. This is important. And you, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. Verse 20, Pray that your flight may not be in the winter. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Verse 33, even so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near and right at the door. By the way, the Olivet Discourse is a condensed version of the book of Revelation, which also says... And, you know, it's interesting people talking about we need to interpret the Scripture literally. All right, well, let's interpret this literally. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is a long way off. The time is near. Revelation 22.10, the very end of the book, in case we missed the point. Do not seal the words of the prophecy. Remember Daniel's prophecy? He said, seal it up. Because it's not for now. It's for later. He says, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is at hand. It is clear from these statements that Jesus expected those whom he addressed that day to experience the things that he described. Had he intended the prophecy to refer to some other persons in some future generations, he would not have used the second but the third person pronoun. Instead of saying you, he would have said they and them. They will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. They shall see the abomination of desolation. Then if anyone says to them, behold, here is the Christ, and so forth. Third, he speaks of this generation. I remember reading when I was in high school and the, right after my awakening to Christ, the first book I ever read was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. And I remember being puzzled by this phrase where Jesus says this would happen in this generation. 
And I remember his explanation was that it, the, the word, that, that this just refers to this race, the human race. That's, Matthew uses this word eight times, and he never means race. He always means this generation. Immediately after indicating that those whom he addressed that day would see the events that he described, verse 33, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is the key which unlocks the meaning of the prophecy. That Jesus did expect the prophecy to be fulfilled in the lifetime of the apostles is made evident from his consistent use of the pronoun then in the second person plural throughout the discourse. Everything Jesus had described up to this point in the discourse, the false Christ and the false prophets, the wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the sun being darkened, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, all of these things were to take place before Jesus' own generation would pass away. This is absolutely decisive. The prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now it should be noted again that Jesus clearly indicated that at least some of the apostles would see all of these things. Immediately following this, and in order to confirm this truth, he said this, Truly, we, would, uh, we might say, Amen. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. And so this clearly was the expectation of the apostles. Jesus spoke often of this generation and his generation and its moral quality. He chided it for its unresponsiveness to his ministry and that of John the Baptist in Matthew and in Luke. He called it an evil generation, an evil, several, these are several references here, an evil and adulterous generation, an unbelieving and perverted generation. Moreover, he said that the righteous blood of all the prophets and the holy men shed since the foundation of the world would be charged against this generation. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had been spoken in the law and the prophets, and by their rejection of him, the Jews rejected Moses and the prophets, and they cast their lot with their fathers who had killed the holy men of old. And so they were held accountable for the accumulated guilt of their fathers. The persecution of the prophets was a, in previous generations found its climax in the crucifixion of Christ. The Jews, in fact, as if divinely inspired, pronounced sentence against themselves as they cried out in Matthew 27:25, His blood be upon us and our children. And so it was. Before that generation expired, Jerusalem was destroyed and over a million people perished. This was the first part of the advent of Jesus. The Jews teamed with the Romans to get, uh, to, for the world to get rid of the Son of God. Now the Son of God has returned to end the old order 
and to establish a new order. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till all of his enemies are made his footstool. And so, in this advent of Jesus, he brings his judgment with those who had been unfaithful to the covenant. He used the Roman Empire to execute the judgment. He made the old system obsolete. So, for example, the temple is going to be completely torn down. The priesthood is going to be completely wiped out. All the genealogical records to be able to trace who's a priest and who isn't are destroyed. And they're, from that point forward, no more animal sacrifice because there's no temple in which to do it. It's destroyed permanently. He made the system obsolete. Israel has given way to the church. A new order began. Now his attention will turn to the world. The Roman collaborators who thought they had snuffed out the menacing Jesus who had also destroyed Jerusalem, had a surprise coming. The condemnation of Jesus by the world was the judgment and condemnation of the world. Jesus had spoken a few days before he stood before the Roman governor, delivered by his people to be tried by the representatives of world justice. John 12:31. now is the condemnation of the world Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And there can be no doubt about the fact that Jesus spoke these words with a view to his own condemnation and death. What was historically, as men view the events of this world, the trial and the condemnation of Jesus by the world was in reality, and according to the purposes of God, the trial and judgment of the world. For in and through those who were present at and took an active part in the trial and the condemnation of Jesus, the whole world from all ages, from the beginning to the end of time, is judged and condemned by God. There is no room for complaint on the part of the world that it was not well represented. Not a bunch of ignorant savages or a band of criminals from the lowest strata of society, not from the fringes of society, not in a period of darkness and ignorance. On the contrary, in the center of the world, in the very heart of civilization, in the fullness of time, Christ is judged, and in that very judgment, the world is condemned. That center of the world and of history was in Jerusalem in the first century. The whole world and all of its cultural uh, present, culture and civilization was present. There were the representatives not only of culture and philosophy and human justice, but also world of, of the, the world of religion, which had been enlightened by the law and the prophets. There were the leaders of the Jews, the theologians of the day, teachers of Moses sitting in the seat of Moses, proud of their knowledge and keeping the law. And there was also the Roman court of justice, famous for its knowledge of what was right 
and true among men, and there was also the Greek culture known for its pursuit of knowledge. This is the world that was tried and exposed as evil through the trial and the condemnation of the Christ of God. And by that trial, the whole world was called before the bar of divine justice, examined and exposed in its corruption, its hypocrisy, and showed its worthiness of damnation. Now I want to suggest right here just a slight preview of where we're going in the next few minutes. This is the backdrop of the good news. The world was forced to take off its mask of goodness and nobility, of justice and the love of truth. In this act of the crucifixion of Jesus and the trial of Jesus, the world was exposed as wicked and rotten. It demonstrated its love of the darkness rather than the light. It showed its constant suppression of the truth and unrighteousness and its enmity against the living God. Therefore, it becomes very plain that Christ represents the light and that they are perfectly aware that there's no darkness in him at all. He had gone throughout the land doing good and revealing the Father. He represented the light in a world of darkness, and the world wasn't having any of it. And in that final hour, he stood before the world without power and without defense, freely, without fear of human power. The world could express its judgment, reveal its inmost heart. And in judging the Christ of God, principally answer the question, what will you do with God, his truth, his righteousness, his holiness, if he is represented by a weak and helpless man? And the answer that they gave was with one accord. Killing. To that world also belonged the power of the state, as instituted by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. And the institution of the state of all ages was well represented at the time by the Roman world power. The representative of the Roman power in Jerusalem was Pontius Pilate. He too, therefore, must be confronted with the question, what will you do about the Christ? Others had already answered. Judas had given his answer to the question. The Sanhedrin, Annas, Caiaphas, the leaders of the Jews, so would Herod, that fox, face and answer the question, when, by the way of uh, intermission in the trial of the Roman governor, the Lord was sent to him. And so did the soldiers, the representatives of Roman power, when they made him the object of their cruel beatings and mocking. And now, in in this third advent of Jesus, he would turn his wrath upon Rome, the great Roman Empire. You see... He entered the world as a baby, obscure and humble. He suffered. He was a suffering servant. He was mocked and humiliated. He was placed on display on a cross 
as a sign of Roman power. But he came back. He came back from the dead. And the Roman Empire was no match for him. Now he rides the clouds and their days have become dark. Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. Amen. And now from his throne, his kingdom has been advancing ever since. And it continues to advance. And through the world, and though the world still hates his light, the light cannot be extinguished. It was mentioned this morning in Sunday school. I was already planning to mention this, but the first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with God's judgment upon Israel and their sin and others, Assyria. And that's the backdrop to chapter 40. You see, Jesus is a conquering king. And he conquers one of two ways. And you're going to find yourself, I'm going to find, we all find ourselves on one side or the other. We're either going to bow the knee to King Jesus and we're going to surrender to his kingship. We're going to defect from the world and join his kingdom or we will be crushed. We will be conquered one way or the other. His light still conquers men and women everywhere. Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust upon the scales. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. You see, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, Jesus came back very quickly in that generation. He wasn't finished with the world. And he is still building He is still advancing his kingdom. He is still crushing the opposition. And in this advent, he conquers all his enemies either by converting them or judging them. So I ask you, will he be your judge? Or will he be your savior and king? Let's pray. The Lord spare us from light and trivial and sentimental views of Jesus, our great God and king, our conquering king. May we remember that you have highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
May we too bow in awe of him and keep his commandments without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Light views of Jesus lead to Christianity light. If he is soft, then we can be soft. Jesus, meek and mild, is not the whole story. In John's vision at Patmos, here's what he saw. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering. He went out conquering and to conquer. This is the real Jesus, the one that we all must come to deal with, either as a Savior or a judge. At the cross, he conquered sin, and in his resurrection, he conquered death. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In him, we too have conquered sin and death, and he is no longer our judge. For in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. O Lord, what comfort, what assurance, what blessing, what boldness comes from knowing that you have given your Christ to the world and also given him all authority in heaven and on earth, that you've committed all judgment and rule to him. Indeed, that he is the only mediator between you and us. You've given us a great prophet. His word shall not return to him empty, but shall accomplish that which he pleases and prosper in the thing to which he sends it to do. Bring to our minds your word so that we can answer the evil one and resist temptation. You've given us a great high priest. He is surely a merciful and faithful high priest and is available to men as a mediator, intercessor, and help in trouble. Since he partook of our very nature, he knows the trials and temptations of this life. Let us be very aware today of the reality of Christ's true humanity, and let us live in the strength of his aid. You have given us a great king. He is the one to whom every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Rule over us, O Christ, and cause us to acknowledge more and more your lordship over every area of our lives, for surely... He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have given him the nations for an inheritance. May we live today in the light of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is now doing, and what he will continue to do until his reign is recognized and acknowledged by all. Bless now our feasting and our resting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.